Chase Chapman is a senior at University of Michigan majoring in business administration. Chase has had experience in data analytics, finance, software development, marketing, and is the non-technical education lead at Blockchain at Michigan. Chase co-founded Decentology with her mentor, which aims to assist developers in deploying blockchain applications and accelerate the development phase with customizable full-stack code. In this episode, we'll talk about how Decentology started, what inspired Chase to explore the world of blockchain, where the future of blockchain is heading, her thoughts on no-code software, and advice she has navigating the entrepreneurship landscape. Welcome, Chase, to the podcast. I just want to start off by asking where you're calling from. I'm calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Amazing. Uh, Definitely a budding um, tech hub down there. Yes. Actually, it is. There's a there's a strong entrepreneurship and and tech community here for sure. Yeah, I, I noticed that you were a hacker fellow, and I actually was considering that going going to Michigan. Um, so it's definitely really? a coincidence. Yeah. Oh yeah, the hacker fellows program is awesome, specifically within Detroit, sort of supporting the tech community there, which is cool. So we have Ann Arbor and we have Detroit, which are both sort of these up and coming tech hubs. Yeah, I definitely want to talk a bit more about your background um, later in the episode. But yeah, I just wanted to start off by asking, you know, how did Decentology start and why you changed the name from uh, TriCrypto? Yeah, so um, Decentology is my startup. It's mostly focused on developer tooling for building blockchain applications. Um, The main sort of initial thought behind what is now Decentology was that cryptocurrency and blockchain have these like amazing use cases, but the problem is that it's really not accessible to mainstream users. And so we initially started Try Crypto because our goal was actually to get people to try this like cryptography um, technology is really what what it ended up being. Um, You know, a lot of people hear crypto and they think, cryptocurrency, but really like cryptography is what's behind a lot of blockchain. And so the main goal behind TriCrypto was to make uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology accessible to mainstream users. And so we quickly sort of uh, started building and realized that while it would be awesome to make this technology accessible for mainstream users directly, what we actually needed to do was empower developers to build awesome applications. And so we started working and focusing a little bit more on developer tooling. And that's why we ultimately uh, sort of became Decentology and rebranded. It was mostly because we wanted to really emphasize this focus on developer tooling for blockchain for a million different use cases that are not necessarily cryptocurrency. Um, of course, you can use our tools to build a cryptocurrency, but you can also build our tools to build a decentralized data management platform. And so that was sort of the thought behind the rebrand. We loved the name, but but we really needed to give really a, a grander vision. Yeah. So I'm just curious how you got into the world of blockchain and entrepreneurship in general. Yeah. So um, I was actually working in marketing and, you know, the world of marketing is really interesting because... It's a lot of, of data and it's a lot of personal data. And, you know, that's sort of how that industry operates. But from my perspective, it was weird because we were buying these data sets. You know, every company buys data sets. They, they handle them, whatever. Um, but it felt kind of strange because, you know, at the end of the day, like people are the ones who could be paid for their data, but they're paid in like the usage of Google or the usage of Facebook, but they're not paid directly. 
And there were a couple of blockchain projects at the time that were working on actually paying people directly for their data, which I thought was super interesting. And so that's when I sort of fell into the blockchain rabbit hole, as, as they say. And I quickly started exploring this world of decentralized technology. And uh, I actually got involved with a program out of UC Berkeley called She256, which matches women who are interested in blockchain with mentors in the space. And so my mentor, Nick, and I started working on Decentology and, uh, you know, quickly it grew from this like mentor-mentee relationship to a co-founder relationship. And so we ended up co-founding Decentology for that reason. So uh, in that way, I sort of like found myself in this like entrepreneurship journey. And I don't think I'd ever expected that or like looked for that. It just sort of happened that way. Um, He's actually a serial entrepreneur. So I learn a lot from him in terms of experience he's built large developer communities. He's had VC-backed startups that have exited. Um, And so I've gotten to learn a lot from him from that perspective. On the flip side, I bring sort of this new uh, perspective and attitude and and very much like a beginner's mindset that I think actually brings a lot of creativity to the space and and to our our relationship and our team. And so we we sort of like stumbled upon this really interesting but really amazing uh, relationship and, and company. Wow, that is so cool because I feel like many student founders usually find their team through their school or just other students interested in that space. So what was it like going from that relationship between a mentor and a mentee to co-founding a company together? Yeah, it was um, actually really natural. I think for us in particular, you know, we we really quickly were able to identify that we had this shared vision for blockchain and crypto, which was really to make it easier for people like my mom, my grandma, even me, because I wasn't super technical at the time. And so while it was um, definitely an interesting shift, it was pretty natural. And the cool thing has really been that in our relationship and, and continuing to build out our team, we've both learned a lot from each other. So there's this new perspective that I bring and his expertise. And so it was um, it was definitely organic, but but always as entrepreneurship is new and different and, and trying to tackle completely wild challenges all the time and, and working together on, on different problems has been really interesting as a result. Yeah, so I'm actually just curious, you know, what your take is on the entrepreneurship space at your school and if there were any resources that they provided you in helping you learn more about entrepreneurship and growing Decentology. Yeah, so Umish actually has some amazing entrepreneurship resources. I will say I did not tap into almost any of them, um, which I, looking back, wish I had. So we have a lot of different sort of like startup student orgs, and we also have startup programs through both our School of Engineering and our business school. I will say that I think for me in particular, because I started with a co-founder who was already a serial entrepreneur and very involved in Silicon Valley and startups in, in the Bay Area, I'm definitely much more tuned into Bay Area, traditional Silicon Valley sort of like uh, communities. So I, I didn't get to experience as much of the Umish crowd, but I know there are a lot of amazing startups that, that come out of Umish and a lot of really awesome entrepreneurs here as well. So we have, you know, both the, the social side and also the formal side of, of providing funding and different startup competitions and things like that. And then on the blockchain side, you know, there are a bunch of different awesome blockchain communities uh, on campus as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the blockchain group at Michigan? Yeah, so we actually have two. So we have Wolverine Blockchain, which is a little bit more of a crypto like trading club, which I'm less involved in. 
And then we have Blockchain at Michigan, which is really about empowering students to get into the blockchain industry. So there's a technical and non-technical curriculum. I helped create the non-technical curriculum. Um, and the technical curriculum is absolutely awesome. So it teaches kids or students really um, how to code in Solidity, which is like the most common language in blockchain and a bunch of other really important skills to not just understand and grasp blockchain, but to actually get hired in the industry, which is so awesome. So one of the big industry reports on uh, blockchain at universities actually just came out this week and U of M was on the top, I think 10 for blockchain at universities, which is pretty big for us. I'm very excited about that. So we have a really awesome blockchain community, a lot of alum in the blockchain community. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really great place to get into this technology, both because you have people who are really interested in the business side and the economics, but also the technical side. And so when you combine those things, you get this really well-rounded uh, group of people who are thinking about blockchain from all angles. Yeah, I'm just curious about your opinion on, you know, like, just from my perspective, my school doesn't offer blockchain or like cryptocurrency classes. So do you think that there is a way for colleges in general to uh, democratize the cryptocurrency curriculum or just make it more accessible to students? So I think this is a very interesting question, and I, I would approach it from two angles. So there's the business school side. Um, on the business school side, a lot of the a, there are not courses, at least at the University of Michigan, that are explicitly and exclusively blockchain oriented, but um, it definitely does get pulled into the curriculum at times. And so what I've noticed that's really interesting about that entire sort of integration of blockchain into the curriculum is that the big focus is on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And while that's all good, it makes sense. Finance is a good use case for blockchain. There are a lot of other things that blockchain could be really useful for. So from that perspective, I think things will slowly become uh, more diversified and, and more broad in terms of the topics covered. Now, on the engineering side, um, there are some professors that are CS professors that love blockchain, some that hate blockchain. And so you get sort of this interesting mix for that reason. I think there are a lot of groups right now that are working on making that curriculum more accessible at the big universities and U of M is certainly one of them. At smaller universities, though, there's definitely still a lot of work to be done, even from a blockchain community side, because really it depends on these student groups to teach each other how to deal with this technology. It's so new. There are not you know, established standards. And so what you end up with is a group of students who are really passionate and driven in an industry that's super hot. So ultimately, my hope long run is sort of two things. Number one, the blockchain market continues to demand jobs in the way that it is now, where schools actually realize that it only makes like economic sense to uh, essentially educate students on this topic. And number two, that the the onus stops falling on all of the students to do everything. Uh, you know, there are, of course, helpful sort of advisors along the way, but I would really like some of the schools to take a little bit more of a, a step in helping support student communities of, of blockchain lovers and learners. That's something that, that over the next few years I think will happen, but I hope it happens sooner rather than later. Yeah. So I guess looping back to Decentology, I know that you come from a very diverse set of backgrounds, including you know software development, marketing, and data analytics experience. How has those skills helped you grow Decentology? And are there any new skills that you have learned as a result of growing Decentology? 
So when I first started, I was not technical at all. And I don't claim to be super technical now. Um, but I think that to me has been sort of the biggest shift. So something that <laughs> I realized when I went into entrepreneurship and and really sort of like found myself in entrepreneurship was two things. Number one, you have to wear so many hats. So I did not know how to write a single line of code when I first started. I should, I would never trust myself to build a web app still to this day. But, you know, when I need to put on my like CSS and HTML hat, I'll do it. Um, on the flip side of that, the the sort of second big thing that that I've learned is if you're mediocre at everything as an entrepreneur, you're probably set. Like you only need to be really good at a few specific things. And then you just need to try and be decent at everything else. So for me, I think a lot of those skill sets helped. But I think the biggest thing that that I took from like, you know, looking back on the, the last year and a half has really been putting on my learner's cap and like being willing to learn absolutely anything, whether it's sales, software development. Yeah, some of the data and analytics stuff, random like guerrilla marketing, pretty much everything you can imagine, like under the sun, I have tried to learn and have taken responsibility for at some point in time. And I think there's something to be said for being willing to continue trying and sort of knowing that entrepreneurship is all about living the learning curve. Like you are the learning curve. You will never be amazing at a single thing. Maybe one or two things. Sure, it's good to be amazing at. But most things you actually want to be mediocre at. And, and that's a really big learning, I think, for people who are dreamers and, and maybe perfectionists. You have to you have to not be good at everything to do all of those things. Yeah, I feel like, you know, as a woman in tech, I, I I feel pressured to always like try to achieve that perfection. Have you ever experienced like stereotypes or struggles as a woman in tech? That's such a good question. So I've been thinking a lot about this, actually. I think that there are two things that makes it really hard to be a woman in tech and particularly like a, a female founder or someone who's sort of driving a lot of like operations pieces. So the first is that I think women, it's much harder for women to ask, like for me personally. And I don't think that applies to all women. There are always things that that 100% don't apply. But I think women are socialized to like please other people generally. I mean, that has sort of been the narrative in a lot of cultures. And, and of course, I'm talking about sort of like the very heteronormative American culture. Um, but from that perspective, like I think it's really hard to just ask for things. So um, whether you're leading or doing fundraising or trying to get an advisor onboarded as, as an entrepreneur, I think that it's really hard for women who uh, struggle to just upfront ask people for things because it can feel transactional. And then the other piece that that I think is is of course difficult is you know you're not necessarily always taken seriously, especially as a young female. Um, and I'm sure you've experienced that. Like it's just of course harder as a whole to uh, navigate. Not only is it how young you are, is it the fact that you're a female, is it the fact that you're in a new industry? You you sort of can't help but wonder like would a man be in this position? You know, like if I were to recreate this and a man was in my shoes, would that be the case? And I think it's easy to get stuck in that that loop. So a big thing for me has been um, being okay with rejection and knowing that a lot of things in entrepreneurship is a numbers game. 
that's really what it comes down to. Um, and, and, you know, starting to learn how to ask for things. And, and uh, as a woman, I think that that can be a challenge. Yeah. So just gearing back towards um, just the entrepreneurship growth, uh, did you participate in any pitch competitions or accelerators to grow? So we actually participated in a couple interesting programs from the blockchain side. So uh, there's a program called Kernel, which is really awesome. They're actually accepting new blockchain projects right now. So they were an amazing program to be involved with. We've also had some really amazing partners, which has really changed a lot of things for us and, and really helped us get very connected in the industry. So we've had a lot of people on our side who have helped us sort of grow and continue to um, to get to like the next level of, of whatever we needed to do. So what has it been like just moving to a virtual context in this pandemic? Like, did anything change amongst how your team worked together and any challenges you faced during that time? So we were actually remote already. So that worked out really well for us. We as a team have always been that way. I think what was interesting is right now we're raising capital and we've we've been talking to investors for a while, but we're really getting serious about it. And one thing that, that I think COVID did change is, of course, like raising is always more difficult in some ways. And it's easier in some because you have more access to, to investors. But generally, it, it is a little bit harder to close on, on certain things. So that's been difficult. But from a team perspective, we actually, I think, have thrived. So one of the cool things that we got to do because we already had this foundation for our team where it was already working, we partnered up with the World Economic Forum to do a blockchain hackathon right when COVID hit. And part of the reason we were able to do that was because we were already remote. And so it was kind of interesting because as a lot of teams were transitioning, we were actually able to go, okay, cool. They're transitioning. They're working through it. We're going to take this time to help try to build something really awesome and, and create something really awesome out of sort of this situation. So for us, it was, um, it was an opportunity to really try to help people make a difference. So we were, I'm really grateful that that's where we were at. I know a lot of teams were not. Um, but for us, it was it was generally a, you know, a simple transition, luckily. Yeah, that's super interesting that you were able to like just grow remotely. So do you think that in the future startups can continue to successfully grow remotely? Or do you think this will change the way that like companies work in person? Do we really need offices? That's such an interesting question. Um, hmm. Do we need offices? So I think there are different types of teams. I think that my team in particular is very product heavy. And we we do a few things to sort of build uh, camaraderie among our teams. So something that that we always like to, to share because it's just, I love this. Uh, every Thursday, we do something called a drink and think, which is basically... One person on our team presents on something cool that they love that has absolutely nothing to do with work and everybody drinks during it. Um, you know, some people drink alcohol, some people don't, different preferences. But I think a lot of the the sort of traditional office space is about bonding and giving people access to the people they work with in a much more intimate way. Our team, luckily, because we had drink and things, was able to create that without needing to be in an office space. But I don't think that that's scalable. So we have a team, you know, that's several people, but we don't have 150 people. And so I think there's definitely something to be said for being in a physical space with other people. And I also think people don't want to be 
you know, in a house with their kids all the time. So I think ultimately, uh, fewer people will go back to two office spaces than than before. But I think there will still be a good amount of people in office spaces just because there's something to be said for being able to create those intimate relationships with other people. And um, yeah, drink and think and, and other things are great ways to, to virtually do that. But if your team is quite large or you don't necessarily have the ability to create uh, like cross-friendly teams, so like if accounting is really good with HR and, and all of these different sort of like relationships, it can definitely be harder. And I think it totally depends on the team. But I don't think as many people will be in office spaces as prior to COVID. Yeah, those those are really good points. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, there's this whole trend on like no code software and just creating more accessible ways of non-tech people to build web apps and like Squarespace, for example. Do you think that blockchain apps will ever go in that direction as well? So this is a really interesting one that I've been getting a lot lately as a question. So there are a couple of things to sort of note here. Number one, I love like Webflow. I love all of the no code or low code sort of movement. I think it's really exciting and like bubble what some of some of the more uh, application centric companies I think are also super interesting. So blockchain is a very interesting technology to apply no code to because Essentially, what's going on in any given blockchain system is that a bunch of computers that are distributed all around the world are running code, and they're all running the exact same code. And so because they're all running the same code, and there's all this complicated math behind it and all these proofs, you know that everyone is running the same code. There aren't going to be bad actors. If there are bad actors, they'll be identified and punished. So you basically have this trustless system where everyone can run on this sort of open um, like computer. The issue with doing that on so many computers is that it costs a lot of money to run that code, you know, everywhere all the time. And so the big thing about uh, blockchain application development is that your code has to be really, really concise and as short as possible. You know, like people always aim to have efficient code, but in blockchain, it's not just an aim. It is an absolute necessity and a requirement because every line of code that you run costs money. And so if you have even one unnecessary you know, line, that's costing you potentially millions of dollars at scale. And so for blockchain, um, it's really important to not have any additional fluff in your code. So I think that what's going to happen with no code is there are going to be very templatized opportunities to do no-code blockchain applications where the code isn't super customizable. It, it really can't be like altered a lot, but it's useful. And then I think there are going to be blockchain applications that end up sort of um, being developed by like hardcore developers, very much uh, high involvement. So in terms of our tooling, we do developer tooling. The goal is to get a developer started and, and then help them through the entire process. We consider ourselves um, a pretty like high engagement. It's not really a no code solution. Although I think in the long run, there's definitely an interesting opportunity to identify these specific use cases that require less um, customization of code and really giving people the opportunity to, to take those use cases and run with them. So it's a really interesting question. And I think 
it's going to be super cool to see what the use cases that can be low code end up being. Yeah, still a new industry, so we only have time to see where things are heading. So that segues great into our next question, which is what the future of blockchain is heading and just overall where you think it's going. Yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts on where the future of blockchain is heading. I guess to give a little bit of context, where it is now might be useful. So there are sort of a couple use cases for this technology that are exploding. So there is financial services. So that's payments. It's any sort of financial derivative, really any financial instrument that um, exists could probably be disrupted with blockchain. Not every single thing, but most things. The other big thing that's popping up is something called NFTs, which stands for non-fungible tokens. There's a lot of jargon in this space. Basically, if you've ever heard of CryptoKitties, what non-fungible tokens do is they take something like a CryptoKitty, which is a virtual cat that exists online only, and it can essentially represent the individual existence of a single cat that is different from any other crypto kitty that exists. So I'm doing a bad job at explaining, but essentially NFTs are a way to represent a unique asset digitally and show that that asset is not a copy of another asset. That it is the only one that exists. It's the only one that can exist. And so there are a lot of interesting applications because you can start breeding cats and like doing all these interesting things. And the reason the blockchain matters there is because you want to be able to own that single cat rather than like in a game where you don't necessarily, you're not the only one who owns like a certain avatar in a game. For example, a lot of people can own that avatar, but with something like CryptoKitties, you are the only one who owns that exact cat with like that certain coat and those certain shoes. And, and so it becomes a really interesting way to interact with our world where you can actually uniquely represent something as you can in the real world digitally, which was never possible before. So that's why even Bitcoin is interesting. You were never never able to show that something that existed, a single dollar that existed online was not copied over. So you start to see like something that's interesting about blockchain, which is essentially the existence of uniqueness and scarcity. And I think what we're ultimately seeing is that money is going to be big. Gaming is going to be be really big. Loyalty is going to be really big. And then something that I'm super intrigued by is IoT. So when you think about something like construction and manufacturing, IoT plays a really big role, but you can't necessarily um, fully audit or understand everything going on within the world of IoT without a technology like blockchain. And so there are sort of these like multiple um, multi-dimensional use cases that, that we're starting to explore. And, and those are a few that, that I think are going to be really big over the next few years. Yeah, that sounds like, you know, possibilities are endless. And also, like, I want to own a crypto cat. <laughs> I'll send you one if you uh one of our partners is actually the creator of CryptoKitties and I will totally send you one because it is such an amazing like example of this technology and the fact that you can like say that you own a certain kitty that is a that is something you could just never do online like you could never say 
I'm the only person who owns Mr. Snuffles, for example. They have like super funny names, these cats that are like auto-generated. Um, but I'll totally send you one because it is a really good example of the weird but awesome world of, of blockchain. Yeah, that sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, yeah, so one of the last questions I had was, is there any advice that you would give to student entrepreneurs and especially entrepreneurs who want to be in this blockchain space? I think for me, the big thing was knowing that you are always going to be learning and knowing that you are never going to be perfect at any single thing. That is that is the whole point of entrepreneurship. So um, that is that is one. I would say number two would be finding a mentor who or multiple mentors. You don't need to like, you know, co-found a company with your mentor like I did. That is totally not necessary. But finding several people who can sort of help guide you through entrepreneurship makes it a lot less lonely and a lot uh, less scary, I think. You know, like having my co-founder help sort of like organize our team and, you know, walk me through like how venture capital works and how entrepreneurship works. And it has been the difference between being able to do all the things we're doing now and, and nothing really. So having really great mentors, I think that's everyone always says that, but it's such a big deal. And then the third one, I would say, especially for women in tech in particular, or honestly women in entrepreneurship in general is like learn to ask. And I think for men, this totally applies too, but uh, something that I think I'm bad at. And, and I think a lot of people I've met who are entrepreneurs are not great at is asking for help, asking for favors, asking basically, like it almost never hurts to ask. And and that's something that I wish I had known, you know, two years ago. So that made a really big difference. All great advice. Thank you so much, Chase, for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks so much. Hopefully you end up doing a blockchain episode soon. <laughs>